there are roadblocks um, in our spiritual growth. There, there's a bunch of them out there, all kinds of things. But one of the major roadblocks for us spiritually to grow spiritually is hidden or secret sin. It's the stuff we're, we're hiding in the closet. We don't want anybody to know about. We pack it away. We don't want anybody to know that we're involved in those kinds of whatever behaviors they are, sinful behaviors. And the problem with sinful behaviors that are hidden in secret is that they become your master. You then become a slave to those sins, and those sins are the things that will control your life. You're hiding. You're, you're ducking. You don't want anybody to find out. You're ashamed. You think that you're going to... That, that nobody will love you if they find out the reality about who you are. And yet, the opposite is true. When those things are revealed, there's freedom. Matter of fact, in Ephesians, Paul wrote, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So there's, there's these things that happen, and, and we think that, that by hiding and having secrets in our life about the stuff that's going on, that we can portray a better version of ourselves. The problem is, is that God knows all about them already. And all he wants us to do is to find somebody else that we can trust, a confidant, and say, you know what? I've got a real problem in this area, and I've been hiding it, and I've been hiding it for a long time, and I don't want to be controlled by it anymore. And I want to find freedom. And I want to, I want to live as Jesus wants me to live. But you know what? Sins aren't the only things that are done in darkness or in secret. There are organizations, even um, religious groups that have secret meetings. They have secret events. They have secret knowledge, secret insight into the things of what they say are of God. And, and the thing they're saying is nobody else knows about this stuff. They're the only ones that understand it. And if you really want to know the, the secret to spiritual things, you have to join their group, learn all their secrets, their secret handshakes and phrases. You have to learn from their profound uh, leader that has an insight to all these hidden secret spiritual realities that you don't know about. But if you come and join them, You'll be enlightened and you will be spiritually in the elite group. Whoop-dee-doo. The problem is, is that those people with those messages, they look at the message of the cross, they look at the message of Christ crucified, and they think that, that, that it's, it's foolishness. They also think that it's too simplistic and elementary, that it isn't deep enough and that you don't have to do enough and that you don't, all this other stuff that goes on. And so they're, what they're doing is they're trying to create this new spiritual uh, secret society that they have the information that nobody else has. And they're trying to persuade others to come and join them to step into the light of this real spiritual truth and meaning and, and learn from their guru. The problem is they don't have anything. It's empty. It's, it's, it, it, it amounts to fluff and stuff. And you know what? That's what Paul was dealing with in the Corinthian church. They were, they were a messed up group of people, highly messed up. 
And if I were to kind of give you four words that would describe what Paul was dealing with, here's what the four words would be. The first word would be divisions. And there were divisions in the church. Uh, and Paul was contending with them and, and, and bringing to light that there has to be unity because our unity is found only in Christ and in Christ alone. There's, there's nothing else that's going to bring a group of people as diverse as that together to be one body. Paul reminds the readers that while the leaders in the church may have different tasks, they all have the same purpose. The second word I'd give to you is leaders. Because there was existing divisions among the people in the church on different leaders. One wanted to follow Paul. One wanted to follow Apollos. And one wanted to follow Peter. And there were probably others that he didn't name. And so they were creating these little factions around leaders. The leaders didn't want that. The leaders wanted them to follow one person and one person only. And that was Jesus. But they had started to develop these little factions within the church. They were going like, well, I'm not going to go to a Bible study unless Paul leads it. Oh, yeah? Well, Apollos is much more eloquent than Paul is. And then they'd say, yeah, but Peter, Peter walked with Jesus on the water. How much more, how, how much better can it get than that to have somebody who actually walked on the water? And they created these divisions within the church. The third word I'd give to you is pride. The Corinthians were a boast, boastful bunch of people. And, and they, they took great pride in themselves, but also in their, the people that they said they're following. Um, they prided themselves in not what they were doing, but in the status and success of their leader. They were, they were, they were proud kind of like vic- vicariously. Because here's this guy's doing really great and because my leader, I think, is, has got a really, you know, let me bring it to a modern day thing. The guy that I follow on the radio has a church of 20,000 people. Oh, yeah, well, my guy, Bill Hyvels, he has a church of 35,000. And it just goes on and on and on like that. I mean, that's the thing that he was dealing with. And, and they, were, they were going like, you know, I really like this guy because, and then they just kind of throw out all the statistics of why he's so great. And that makes them great somehow. And so he's dealing with a pride issue. But the thing about it is, is the gospel is not about indulging of the flesh and fleshly ideas. It's about putting fleshly desires to death. The gospel spells death for human pride. And, and for all that is worthy of praise, it is the work of God himself. And that's all that you get the praise on anything. No human being. The fourth word I'd give to you that Paul's dealing with is wisdom. Because it seems like the status in the Corinthian church was determined more by one's intellectual standing than one's wealth. Uh, those Those who were teaching were regarded highly by the secular community as being wise. And, and to be more highly esteemed were those who had the skill of speaking and persuasion. And it was kind of like Paul's going like, really? You find that to be the wisdom that really gives you status? What he wants the readers of this letter to know is that the divine wisdom of God is incomprehensible to the natural man, to those who are far from Christ. They can read it, but they don't get it. Divine wisdom does 
not come from the great thinkers. That's not where it comes from. God reveals his wisdom through his word and by his spirit for our good. Now, the problem Paul had is because of those four things. He had a hard time speaking to them in spiritual terms in deeper areas of life because they were so immature. They'd never developed. They'd never grown. They'd never come to the place where they really starting to to dig deep into the things and understand. And and it was that they didn't have an appetite to go deeper into things. And, And even if they had an appetite for it, they couldn't kind of like digest it and understand it because they were so weak minded spiritually so paul's addressing that issue and really wants them to understand and here's the point is that if you're going to mature in christ it's not what you know or whom you know it's what you do with what you know that makes you a deeper follower of jesus you can know all that stuff You can have it all packed up here in your head, but if it never transfers down to your heart and makes a difference and a change in your life, then what you've been studying is basically useless. It doesn't amount to anything because what God's telling us is that his word is alive and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. That it does its work as we allow it to. But when we don't allow God's work to to, to penetrate our hearts and our lives to transform us, then all we're doing is filling our heads with knowledge That is just knowledge. And God wants us to move beyond that. And that's kind of where we pick up on Paul's letter today to the Corinthian church. He's reminding the church about God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. He's talking about the boastings of man. And so we're in in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 18 through 23. And we're going to deal with 18 and 19 or the first half of verse 19 first. And here's what it says. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly to God. What, what Paul's dealing with here and what he's, he's bringing out right here at the get-go in these, in these verses is that the, it's the wisdom of man is foolishness compared to God's wisdom. wisdom. Paul's addressing two things here. The wisdom of the world and the boastings of man. And you see it kind of like not necessarily blatantly like poured right out in front of your face. But he says, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age. There there are people in the churches all around us. And there may be even some in this church that think that they have a special gift in knowing in knowing the really important things of God or of this world more importantly, and, and the things of this world that would set them apart from kind of the normal average Joe. Those are the kind of people that, that they're, they don't want to hang around with because they're just kind of common. They don't have a real understanding of things, the deep wisdom of the world, not of the wisdom of God. And... and The Bible tells us very clearly, and that's what Paul is saying, is that that kind of wisdom is folly or foolishness to God. I mean, you just think about all the wisdom that you've heard spewed out over the last 10 months in regards to what's supposed to happen in November in this country in an election year. All of them are the wisest people that have ever walked the planet. There's no one smarter than them. And yet when you listen to them, you go like, 
You guys are nothing but a bunch of fools. You guys don't know up from down. You don't know, you don't know your own lies from the truth. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that's a liar is a politician. You know, that's what I love about you guys. I don't have to cross the, t- cross the T's and dot the I's for you. You just pick up on it right away. You go like, yep, we read your mind. It's like an open book. Yeah. All right. So, but, you know, so if you think about our culture right now and you think about the, and you listen to the Corinthian church, there are so many things that are parallel to this because the Corinthians as a society and as in the church, it kind of washed into the church. They were arrogant and conceited bunch of people. And they took great pride in their own wisdom or in the wisdom of the guy that they were following. A fact which Paul will bring increasing, increasingly clear to us further on through this letter. But here in these verses, Paul's making a case for repentance. You probably don't see it because the word repent isn't right there. We expect to see, all right, you know, like uh, when Peter got up to speak for the first time after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and, and, they, and, and all the people that Peter just preached to said, what should we do? Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you. Well, that's not what Paul does here. Paul's, Paul's being a little bit more subtle about it, but he still wants the concept of repentance to be there for him. And it is, it's really clear because to repent is to turn around or change one's mind. That's what he's calling them to do. I want you to change the way you think about wisdom, about boasting, about pride. I want, the, I want you to, to, to make an about face and start going the other way. And, and he's asking them to not only change their thinking, but their actions regarding the wisdom and regarding their leaders. Because you just... If you just try and change your thinking without bringing the action along with it, nothing happens. Thank you for that little commercial break. We'll get back to our regularly scheduled program. Paul is you know, working at trying to help these people to understand that there is this this thing that happens in our lives that keeps us from transformation. And part of the reason that we don't trans- aren't transformed by the Spirit of God is because we really don't believe what God has to say is true or that it will make a difference in our lives. And so he he's calling us not just the the Corinthians church, but he's calling us to fess up to our own errors, to to the error of our thinking, to acknowledge that by the thinking of ourselves to be wise, we are foolish, we're we're self-deceived in thinking that we're something, that we know something. And he instructs us for the sake of wisdom and to embrace folly. And by embracing the folly of the scriptures, we become wise. Totally doesn't make any sense. But Paul says it will transform your life. Now, I want you to go back and look at verse 18. Is that still up on the screen? 
Look at that first sentence. Let no one deceive himself. Paul's saying that self-deception is an issue that we all have to deal with. It's something that comes into our lives. We deceive ourselves in thinking that we've, we've learned something that's really valuable and really important, and it's really going to change my life. I've read a book on, you know, whatever it is, and it's, it's absolutely, like, mind-blowing. And all it is, it's not even worth the paper that it's been written on. We, we, might, we might hear a great preacher get up and speak, and he says something that sounds right. And we think like, man, that, that kind of sounds right. And, and it, I, I really like the way it sounds, so I'm just going to believe it anyway. And the problem with that is, is that we're not checking it out for ourselves. And there are even sometimes when we pick up the Bible and we start to read the Word of God. And, and by the way, the Bible says some pretty hard things at times. And we read it, and we don't like it, and then we go like, I wonder what society thinks about that. So we kind of go online, and we Google, you know, what's the latest on this issue, and all of a sudden we're going like, oh, wow, what, the, what, what everybody in society says to do is the complete opposite of the Bible. So the Bible, I don't know if I can really trust it, because it's not lining up with what everybody else is doing, and so I'm going to trust the wisdom of this world rather than the wisdom of the Word of God. That's self-deception. We're deceiving ourselves into thinking that we've got the right line of thinking when in reality our thinking is futile and we're deceiving ourselves into believing this stuff. Now, there's two forces that seem to hold deception in our hearts. One force is a built-in sense of insecurity, vulnerability, and fear in the world beyond our control and threatening our own happiness. And this comes just from being in, in the creaturehood, of being created, because after the, the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden, we've all been on that same path ever since. It, it's inherent to our nature. Everyone has it. The other force that's driving the boasters uh, is the feeling that they've got things under control. In other words, the man is the master of his own fate, that human wisdom will suffice to solve all of our problems, that we've got it all together, or at least we know someone who does, and we aspire to be like them. And the glue that holds all these forces together in our heart is self-deception. When Paul wants to dismantle the the soul-destroying, community-rending, God-dishonoring pride at Corinth, he has to do it at least two with two things, not just one with two. He must overcome the deception of human all-sufficiency, and he must solve the problem of human insecurity. That's what he's trying to do in this text. Well, let me put it to you in a different way. I'm going to put it to you in two different ways, maybe. Let it's like this. Human pride is rooted in two kinds of self-deception. One is deception that I can handle my own problems. And the other deception is that nobody can handle my problems. That's where we deceive ourselves. Remember, I started this off by talking about secret sins. And the reason they're secrets is because I can handle it myself. Therefore, I don't have to let anybody know. 
or there's nobody that can help me with my situation. Therefore, I'm not going to let anybody know. We've deceived ourselves into secrecy. And here's, here's the other way it can look. Because it's the pride of man that dishonors Christ. And, and here's how that dishonors Christ. One is to feel no need for Jesus. I can handle it myself. The other is to feel your need is so great, he can't do anything about it. We look at Jesus and go like, I know you died on the cross for the sins of the world. I know that you raised Lazarus from the dead. I know that you were even resurrected from the dead yourself. But my problem is far too great for you to handle. And so I'm just going to keep it to myself as a secret. That dishonors the grace of God. That dishonors God. We're telling God you can do anything except this one thing. Or we're saying to Jesus, you know what? You're the greatest person in the world, but I've got this one. I can do it. And that's deception. We start to boast about it. You know, boasting and deception are the twins that are part of the wisdom of this world. Because the wisdom of this world makes claims that are destructive both to the church and to the individual. So, if we really truly want to become wise, wise as God views wisdom, wise in those divine and eternal matters which God reveals through His Word and His Spirit, we must forsake worldly wisdom and embrace what the world regards as folly. In, in simple terms, we must become foolish by embracing the simplistic foolish truths of the gospel of Jesus, the apostolic doctrine of the apostles or of Christ crucified. We must embrace that which the world has rejected as foolish. And we cannot have it both ways. We cannot have God's wisdom and the world's wisdom because they are incompatible together. They don't work together. It's like a match in gasoline. You're going to have a disaster if you try and mix the both of them. You know, we're pretty smart as human beings. Like, for instance, we've actually had a man walk on the moon. That takes some brain power to get that. When I was in high school, <clears throat> in my math room, they had a computer. And the computer took up half of this room right here. And you know what you could do on that computer? You could play a game of chess. This little device I hold in my hand right now is so much more powerful than that computer back in 1974. This just blows our minds, what's in here and how they put it together, the technology of it. This is not wisdom. This is intellect. And this, in order to have this device... You have to have God's wisdom in order to know what is good and what is evil that you're looking at on this. This can destroy your soul. It will rot your mind and it will put a barrier between you and Jesus. So when you go home tonight or this afternoon, as you drive across a bridge or a river, just throw it in there for a day. Only if you have insurance on it. 
So, I think that Paul's assuming that the root of boasting and pride is a feeling of insecurity. We're not secure in Jesus, and we want to be secure in somebody else, like a great teacher. This is the guy where I'm going to find my security, or security in my own wisdom, in my own understanding of the world. And 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 what it what they what we do to help that security is we shore it up by expressing pridefully and boasting about our wisdom or the wisdom of the people we're following. And what it does is it destroys relationships. It's robbing God of his glory because all the boasting that we do in the world should only go to God. That's why, we're, that's why Paul has this call to repent, to change our minds, to turn around. Got to admit the fall. He turned back to the gospel first proclaimed by Paul and then confirmed and validated by Apollos and others throughout the centuries to this very day. That's what we're to do. Let's move on. Now Paul cites two Old Testament passages as proof texts to show that worldly wisdom is folly and that God's folly in the eyes of the world is true wisdom. Verses the end of 19 and verse 20. For it is written... He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. The first quotation comes to us from the book of Job. He who catches wise in their craftiness. And this this is an interesting quotation that, that Paul put in here at this time. Because it comes from Eliphaz, one of Job's friends. And, and then, what he does later on in verse, he, he, the guy that he's quoting in Job 42 gets rebuked by God for being wrong. And here's what it says in Job 42. And it came about after the Lord had spoken these things, these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So how can Paul take this guy who used wrong words against Job and use it as an illustration? How can he do that? Well, Eliphaz and, uh, is, and his two friends, it wasn't that they were wrong in what they said about God. He was wrong in how he applied this truth to Job. He took a truth about God and misapplied it to the situation. Eliphaz was accusing Job of being crafty. And this, that's what explained Job's um, sufferings as divine judgment. That's what he's saying is, in your craftiness and your scheming, God's judging you and that's why you've lost all of your children. That's why you've lost all of your wealth, everything you've ever owned. That's why you've, you're, you're sick and you're scraping these sores with, with broken pottery. You're sitting on an ash heap. And that's why you still have a nagging wife that says, why don't you just curse God and die? And, and, and this Eliphaz is, is saying it's because of your craftiness. But God comes back around and says, that's not what I, that's not true. It's true that God does catch the wicked in their own cunning and their own wisdom. And it's a means by which it becomes their downfall. So the wise of this age are not so smart after all. God allows the wise to carry their own schemes, but he employs their cunning schemes, their wisdom, to bring them down. He uses it against them. 
I mean, it's, it, this is a true saying from the Bible. Write it down. Memorize it. Remember it. You will reap what you sow. In other words, the words that or the, the seeds you're planting in your family, at work, in the community, if they're seeds of discord, of gossip, of harm, of, bo- of uh, slander, whatever it is, that's coming back to you in tenfold. So God's saying, like, be careful. Watch what you're doing with that. The reason why Paul uses this is, is he's, he's uh, showing us that Eliphaz has thought himself to be wise to where, where he was the self-appointed counselor to Job. Like, hey, Job, you're stupid. I'm smart. So here, listen to what I have to say. And what happens is Eliphaz becomes the illustration of the very truth that he misapplied to Job. The second quote Paul employs comes from Psalm 94. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. It's interesting that the psalm actually reads, if you go back and read it in the psalms, it says the Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are a mere breath. Or if you want to put it this way really quite succinctly, a puff of wind. And, and, and Paul exchanges two words here. He exchanges the word wise for the word man. And in the context of the psalm, it becomes clear that the unbelieving man thinks himself to be wise where he is really foolish. And so the wisdom or the thoughts of the unsaved man are the thoughts of one who thinks himself wise. Second, Paul is using the rendering of futile while the translators of psalm use the expression a breath or a puff of wind. The thoughts of arrogant or Worldly wise men are futile or useless because they are temporal rather than eternal. Man's thoughts are restricted to this age and God's thoughts are eternal. Man's thoughts, even if true in this age, are not true in the next age. They will pass away. Merely temporal truths are, are thus useless truths as far as eternity is concerned. So Paul's still showing us why the pursuit of worldly wisdom is foolishness. Worldly wisdom is merely temporal. It won't last. Man's reasoning are useless for eternity as far as eternity is concerned. Man's reasonings are not just futile. They are destructive. They not only lead us astray, but they actually become the means of tripping us up and causing us to stumble. And it's no wonder that we should forsake worldly wisdom and pursue the wisdom of God which comes through the Word and through the Spirit. God's really calling us to spend time in the Word of God, listening to what the Spirit has to say, so that as we're reading the Word of God, we're discerning what He has to say to us, so that as we read the newspaper, we read magazines and books, we hear people speaking and we hear all kinds of stuff going on that we have the ability to distinguish what is true and what is false. Because if we don't distinguish that, we ourselves are in in grave danger of believing a lie, being self-deceived that this is all good and fine and God is pleased with it when in fact God is angry about the sin. Now, when Adam and Eve were first in the garden, God's wisdom was really simple. 
Here's what God basically said to them. He says, of all the trees and the fruit in the garden, you can eat of all of them except this one tree right here, the tree of wisdom or the knowledge of good and evil. That one you shall not eat of. There is a tree of eternal life, the fruit of eternal life there. They didn't eat that one. And so what happens is Adam and Eve, they say, God says, if you eat of that tree, you will die. And so Eve and Adam, they're doing their thing. And then the snake, by the way, it had legs at that point. I don't know what it looked like, but he's crawling on his belly now because of this whole thing. Anyway, Satan comes in the form of the snake and he convinces Eve that the truth that God said was a lie. And she believed the lie of Satan rather than the truth of God. She ate the fruit. And guess what? We all die. It was simple truth. And what God is saying is, is that in all of that is that, that um, God, all of God's reveal, uh, truth is revealed to us. He reveals to us the things that he wants us to know. But there are some things that are hidden only for God. There is hidden truth. And, and he doesn't want us to know that. If he wanted us to know it, he would reveal it to us. What he has done is he has revealed more than what we can handle in the word of God right now. There is nobody I know that walks on the planet of this earth that knows all the truth that is contained in God's word. It's a lifetime of studying and understanding God's word. But there are other things that God has hid from us. And so there, it is out of our understanding. And, and what has happened now is that there are people out there who are saying there are hidden truths of God that have been revealed to me that I will make known to you for a small fee. They think, seem to think they have the corner market on what God has for his own. Here's the, here's the thing is that all the truth that is known and revealed by God is for every believer. That truth is your truth. God has given to us everything that we need. All things belong to the saints. No one has a corner market on the truth. I may have skipped a verse there that I wanted to read to you. I I missed a whole page. Well, well, you know what? I'll get it back. Listen. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I can. I'm smart enough to figure out. I should put numbers on these pages sometimes so I can see actually. Where, you know. All right. So going back to Adam and even the fall for, forward because we're talking about God's word being hidden and the wisdom that is that which He's given to us is Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us and to our sons forever that we may observe. All the words of this law. God says to us, I've revealed everything you need to know about me. There are things that I am not going to reveal to you. Those things are only for me. When Jesus came and presented himself as Israel's Messiah, we shouldn't be surprised that when he did his ministry, it was a public teaching like the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught thousands of people uh, this, this, the most incredible message ever given. He did not seek to gain followers on the fringes of Judaism in the darkness of night. 
He went right to Jerusalem, taught in the temple. He engaged the teachers and leaders of the nation and showed them their teaching to be in error. False teachers uh, specialized in the unknown or the obscure. But Jesus didn't. Jesus brought in something else. And I know there's a verse up there. What's the next verse, Phoebe? Yeah, John, I forgot to put it in my notes. John 18.20, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. In other words, Jesus, in, in the ministry that he had, it was a public ministry, ministry where he wasn't hiding anything from anybody. There wasn't some kind of a secret rite or passage by Jesus. He says, here it is. I'm an open book. Read it. Come and study it and believe it. The problem is, is that we now have people who are trying to teach things in secret and saying, here's the secret thing that you don't know that God has revealed to me. And, and if we follow the, the principle of Jesus, everything is open. We don't have anything to hide. We don't have anything special to give. And as we read the epistles of Paul and Peter, we find that the church was constantly plagued by false teaching. And this teaching is concentrated on the vague and the unknown. It is focused on what God has not spoken rather than what he has revealed. False teachers, in order to draw a personal following, must teach a truth unique to themselves, which is not being taught by any of the others because they have to have a distinctive message. This message cannot be the gospel or the apostles' doctrine. Because every Christ-following teacher teaches the same thing about Jesus. Jesus crucified for our sins. Buried and raised on the third day, empowered us with the Holy Spirit. That's the message. They've got to have a what they would call a higher truth, a truth which results from speculative teaching on obscure issues. These false teachers have been manipulating their way, manipulating their way into the church for centuries. That's why Peter said in his second letter to the church in chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you, false teachers among us. Don't be deceived by false teachers. Test every word to the word of God. That includes me. Just because you hear me say something doesn't make it the gospel truth unless it comes out of the word of God. You should go back and you should look it up and you should study it and you should go, did he take anything out of context? Did he misquote the Bible? Is he using God's word correctly? You should test me. Because I'm not above reproach. These false prophets use a bit of God's truth and maybe a bit of God's wisdom, and then they add their own twist to it to make it unique to themselves. And it sounds like they have something that is exclusively set apart for only those who will come under their own teaching. I'm going to tell you this. In this town of Lander, there are a bunch of really good preachers preaching the gospel of Jesus every Sunday. We do not hold the corner on the gospel of Christ. We don't. There are other churches out there that are probably better than us. There are, there are pastors out there that are smarter than me. They, they know how to preach the word of God. And so if we just say, hey, we're the only church in Lander, that's hogwash. 
That's horse roar. You can't believe that. I don't believe that. And Jesus doesn't want us to think that because we're all part of the body of Christ. We're one segment of it. The other churches in town are a part of that. Those who are are preaching the truth of Jesus and revealing God's wisdom through his word to other people. That's who we are. The wisdom teachers of this age have nothing to offer the saints, nothing which to tempt us to go and check it out. Forsaking the true wisdom to to pursue false wisdom is like forsaking your place as a son of the world's most rich of the world's richest man to live with a homeless beggar who says that he has the knowledge and the keys to obtaining wealth. I'm going to give up all the wealth of the kingdom because this guy over here says he's got a mystical key that's going to unlock the wealth of the kingdom. Ridiculous. So how are these things ours and why do we possess them? It's not due to our wisdom or to our social standings or to the status. It's a result of belonging to Christ as you see in those last few verses up on the screen. So basically what Paul has called us out to do is to repent, to change our minds regarding wisdom of men. We are to cease taking pride in the wisdom of men in the wisdom of this age. There are two opposing ways of thinking about the world that can be found in our country today. One belongs to those who have a very narrow perspective solely to what is natural. The other belongs to those whose understanding of the natural is framed by the supernatural. The one takes in only what um, takes in no more than what can than what they can sense or glean. The other allows all accumulation of information to be informed by the reality of the transcendent Jesus. One discriminately celebrates diversity, indiscriminately celebrates diversity. The others seek to understand life diversity in light of its unity in Christ. The one can go no further than the intuition. The other pierces through to truth. One presumes that everything changes and that change is the only constant. The other measures the things that that change by the standard of things that are changeless. All of these differences arise from the simple fact that one perspective receives its meaning from God and the other comes from the world. Paul calls us to renounce secular wisdom of this age, to view life through divine wisdom, which God provides through his word and his spirit. This doesn't mean that we as Christ followers don't pursue wisdom and knowledge and understanding and truth. We do. We have to do it. It does say that for a Christ follower, wisdom begins with God and ends with God. That's what the Proverbs said. There is no wisdom and no understanding, no counsel apart from God, apart from the Lord. When we study nuclear physics, when we study astronomy, when we, when we study computer science, we begin with the foundation which God has already laid. We test all claims to the truth and the standard of God's word. Divine wisdom, when, when divine wisdom contradicts human knowledge, we know which one to question and which one to trust. There are far too many Christians today seeking truth in the opposite direction. They begin with human understanding and reasoning. Then they look for the Bible as an illustration or a proof text. The wisdom of God is the foundation on which we do all of our building in the church. And and it's the standard for which we do our thinking and our work. 
And we need to carefully consider the vast differences between divine wisdom and the wisdom of this age to beware of placing our trust or our pride in the wisdom of men. We embrace the wisdom of God knowing that all along it is true wisdom. Paul so calls us for a change of our mind and action with the, which characterizes us in the terms of our boasting and our pride. Our boasting and pride in ourselves and our wisdom and in other men. The wisdom of men is foolishness and destructive. The wisdom of God belongs to all the saints. It is not mediated by one leader alone. Don't follow just one guy. God never set up the Bible to be that way. He never, the only guy, one guy you follow is Jesus. <laughs> and, and the way that God set it up is that, that no one man will usurp, usurp the position or prerogatives which are for Jesus alone. Jesus did not choose one apostle. He chose 12. He did not instruct the church to have only one leader, but to have a plurality of leaders called elders. The teaching of our text today exposes two extremes that we should repent of. The first extreme is that of going too far afield, seeking truth from human wisdom when we should search for that in the word of God. The second extreme is being too narrow, in limiting ourselves to one leader, to one perspective, one source of wisdom. May God keep us from these extremes and enable us to seek truth and wisdom as taught in Scripture and expounded by a large number of those whom God has gifted to teach us and lead us. Here's what it is. We do need help. So let's admit it. And the help is there. So let's accept it. And in God's grace, this is what it means by these two things. It means humility. We do need help. We need to humble ourselves and say, Lord, I need help. And encouragement. God will give you the help. He's got it. He's willing to give it to you. Amen? Here's our reflective questions for today. Um, If you didn't get it, a little piece of paper, there might be some left at the back. I don't know for sure. Question number one, what are the things that I've read or heard that are in contradiction to God's word that are deceptive and causing me to think in the world's wisdom? Question number two, how could my pride in my own own wisdom or the wisdom of another person keep me from accepting the wisdom of God in his word? Question number three, What problem slash need do I have that I think I can handle on my own that really needs God's help? Question number four. What problem or need do I have that I think is too great for God to deal with? By the way, just a little word of instruction on these questions. They're meant for you, not for your spouse or for your neighbor. So reflect on them for yourself. (laughs) And don't go, did you read that? You need to do that. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word is bringing to us the wisdom, the insight, the understanding, the knowledge that we need to distinguish between the futility and foolishness of this world's wisdom 
and the life-giving, sustaining, strengthening wisdom of our Father. Help us to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us today, that we would repent, that we would change our ways, that we would make uh, a change in our mind and in our actions and move in a different direction to become obedient to you in all things that you've laid out for us. You've given it all to us, and you're just telling us to embrace it and enjoy it and live by it. So we just simply ask, transform our hearts and our minds, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.